Welcome to the Lionheart Podcast, where we explore the dynamics between health, spirituality, and the natural world. Today, I'm speaking with Dawn Borman-Brunk. Dawn is an animal communicator and an extraordinary author. She has written books such as Shapeshifting with Our Animal Friends, Animal Voices, and her latest and greatest, Awakening the Ancient Power of Snake. We discuss the details of telepathic communication and the intricate web of life and how everything is interconnected and with self-awareness and stillness we can actually receive and perceive the energetic transmissions from nature and from our animal friends. We uncover the relationship between snake and goddess and the truth within the mythology of the story behind the Garden of Eden. Some of these uncoverings may change your perception of snake forever. Dawn, welcome to the Lionheart podcast. I have personally thoroughly enjoyed your books and your message. And I find even your journey and your story quite fascinating because you are a professional animal communicator. Yes. That's right. Yes. Also a professional writer and editor. And you have truly managed to bring the two worlds together in a beautiful, unique way. Good for you. You love your work, don't you? Well, thank you. I do. I do love writing and I love doing animal talks. And yes, yes, (laughs) I do. (laughs) How did it all come about? It was Animal Voices, your first book. Is that right? It was my first book, yes. And it came about in a a really unexpected way. I was working as an editor of a health and wellness magazine. And one of the first articles that came to my desk was about an animal communicator in Anchorage, you know, a woman who talked to animals. And I had never known there was such a thing other than, you know, in fiction, Dr. Doolittle and so on. Long story short, I ended up talking to the woman and was very impressed with her. She was a very no-nonsense woman, very practical. And yet she had these amazing conversations with animals, with squirrels and dogs and horses. And that fascinated me. And she turned me on to an author, J. Allen Boone, who wrote about this back in the 1950s. I read his book, Kinship with All Life, which I highly recommend. He really became a mentor figure to me, even though he's passed on, you know, his writing and his presence through his writing became a kind of a mentor figure. I began to find out that there were other animal communicators in the United States, well, in the world, but I was in the United States. So focusing on them and ended up interviewing quite a few of them. And that became my first book. It was just born of curiosity of how does this work? How do we communicate with animals? How do we understand them in a way that has meaning huh? and purpose? And what would animals tell us if we really could understand them? So that's kind of how it all began for me. And then you answered all those questions in the book, Animal Voices. Yeah, I ended up interviewing about quite a few, 20, I think, different communicators. And then unexpectedly also, I think I just opened. I think I had asked so many people how it works that it kind of opened something in me. And there were some birds outside my bush. I was in a very kind of meditative state. I was working on the book and typing and kind of in that zone and a flock of birds came to the bush right outside my office, and I just moved to them, and I had a little conversation with them. It was as so many of the communicators had described, and yet having the experience myself within me changed everything. It made me finally understand how this really works, and that we can commune through our thoughts and through our feelings with other species, which is amazing. (laughs) 
it does make sense because in my experience with animal communication and animal communicators, teachers, it isn't about a special gift or something unique to mm-hmm. certain few people. It is very much our natural ability. So I guess you created the experience for yourself by immersing yourself into the knowledge of it, I guess, the opening. Yeah, I think that is how it happened. I think I was just beneath consciousness, kind of just so curious about it and wondered how it would happen. And I I think I kind of tricked myself, you know, when you're in a very Zen state, whether you're meditating or walking, for me, it was writing, it just provided a natural opening to that, to that kind of intuitive, very calm, open-hearted space that allows communication to happen. Yeah. Curiosity, being open and being meditative. And I think that's, you know, I do sometimes teach animal communication workshops and that's really the main thing that we do is we learn to get out of our own way. Huh? Because it's the rational kind of skeptical mind that's constantly telling us, oh, only crazy people talk to animals, you know, or, or whatever it is, whatever your wall is. So we kind of have to dampen that and get to that point, that deeper more authentic, centered self that can open the heart and open the mind and just be. And it's a very natural state. We're kind of so removed from that. Our culture has been great in so many ways, but it's also had the effect of removing us from that more natural, authentic state that we all have. Mm -hmm. So yes, as you said before, we all have this ability. It's just a matter of kind of quieting the mind and tapping into that and opening that. Yes, I also see that removal is a bit of a disconnect. I mean, modern science today, so even the sceptical mind can lay to rest because modern science today actually proves that everything is interconnected. We're all made Mm -hmm. up of the same stuff. I mean, that's quantum Mm -hmm. mechanics. So there really is a very real scientific side to this work, isn't there? So, but I do know what you mean about that. For me, there was at some point in my life that skeptic, but then it's the self-doubt that comes in. Yeah, that too. That too. I mean, I think it's healthy to be a little skeptical, but you're right. It's the habit of self-doubt that kind of doubts ourselves or thinks that other people can do this, but we can't. So it's a kind of a wounding huh, that we have that we need to buck up a little bit and, (laughs) and trust ourselves more for sure. For sure, a lot of this is about trusting ourselves. And the more you do it, it's like anything, the more you do it, the more easy you become with it, and the more fun it becomes, huh? Absolutely. Well, to trust ourselves is a nice place and to trust the animals. So when you speak of telepathic communication, can you describe the process perhaps a little bit and how that is part of what you call the web of life? I love that whole phrase, telepathic communication in the web of life. It is really articulating the interconnectedness mm. of everything and everyone, everything, every creature, every being. It's so beautiful. No, thank you. I think it works a little differently for everybody. Everybody has their own way of tuning in. So for me, it's almost hard to say because I've been doing it for so long now. It's very integrated into who I am. But it really is what I said before. It's a letting down of the walls of separation. And it is definitely a tuning in to the deeper self, you know, that small, still small voice within. And then it's a sharing. I like to think of communication, you know, one of the core words in there is commune. It really is about communing. It's about letting go of words and ideas and just kind of opening up to this flow that exists and that comes about. It's inspired by and it exists because of kind of a natural curiosity that we might have with the world. So if you're talking to a moose or a bird or a a dog, it's just inspired, I think, by that. I almost want to say childlike, and it is childlike in one sense because it's very open-eyed, huh? And it's very curious and light and playful 
But at the same time, there's a depth to it. And there's a connection that you can actually feel between the animal you're talking to, just like when we talk to humans, and we feel it's a very heart to heart conversation, you know, some conversations are kind of superficial, but others are can be very heart to heart or soul to soul. And you really move away from that from a sense of being fully heard. So to me, it's like that. It's more of one of those fully heard conversations where you're just tuning in. You're kind of adjusting your inner dial to that animal and listening. And I say listening, but I also mean sensing. Sometimes I get images or little movies in my head, you know. So it's a translation process that occurs, huh? between animal and human, or we're animals too. So <laughs> between beings, <laughs> it's a communication that happens between beings. So, yeah. I love how you bring the child into it. And I just want to add to that, that the wisdom is still there, mm. even if it is a little young body, there is still a depth. Yes. And that's what we discover in all animal species. And it is very much their unique wisdom, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. You said that really well. Yes, I totally agree. There is a wisdom that comes. And you're right, it comes up in playfulness and humor and and in all kinds of different ways. It's just an isness, isn't it? It's kind of this open isness of being and connection. And it flows. Sometimes it is more serious. Sometimes it's very lighthearted and it's just a flow. So when you say, how does that connect to telepathic communication in the web of life? I think telepathy is a connection of sometimes one-to-one But when we open beyond that, it really is a connection to the web of life, to all beings. And so it's just as really easy in a way to communicate with clouds or the mountain or the grass, the earth herself. All of that is available to us. It's just how open can you be, I guess is the question. How open do you want to be? Huh? Yes. Sounds to me as well. It's like how expansive do you want to be now? We're talking about, I was about to ask you about communicating with plants as well, but clearly that all fits into the same. We're even going to the clouds and the moon. (laughs) Right. Whatever, wherever. (laughs) And being receptive. Hmm? Mm -hmm. The wisdom really comes through in the animal tarot cards. Just Mm. thought of that, as we were saying, with the specific species and their unique wisdom. I mean, that's clearly articulated in a really creative way as well. Mm. Mm. Thanks, thanks. You know, that was actually one of my favorite projects was doing that tarot deck because I do have a long history of fascination with the tarot. And I do love how it's poetic and visual and symbolic and it's all kind of concentrated, huh, in one card. That was a really fun thing to do is to kind of translate traditional tarot ideas and cards into animal teachers, huh? Was it a new discovery for you? But you must have been in some place very much in touch with spirituality and metaphysics already or didn't? Mm. Yeah, you were. So I think even from a really young child, I was always interested in like deep questions, you know, I was kind of like the strange little child (laughs) that asked my mother. I remember the first question that I had. It just amazed me that more people weren't interested in their dreams. I was totally fascinated by dreams and the dream world. And I just couldn't believe that we didn't talk about it or that wasn't something that was so incredibly magical and wonderful. And, you know, it really wasn't until later, until college, that I learned that other people did talk about dreams and that there was a whole history of dreams. So yeah, all of that was very much working through me, huh? working within me as I learned about other things too. Yeah. Yeah, because our dreams are coming from our unconscious and our intuition comes through the unconscious. Isn't that Mm -hmm. right how it works? And so the messages, symbolic messages, 
Is that how you work with dreams? Yeah, well, and that would totally fit with how Tarot works, you know. It's like, yeah, that symbology and that and those images and feelings and ideas that come up from our deeper self and then can be communicated, kind of coded, huh, in cards or in words. To use them as stepping stones, you know, for me, Tarot is also, it's a stepping stone and you're using these images and ideas to kind of tap into that deeper psyche. So in a way, it's like the tarot comes from images or ideas from the psyche or from the deep self, and then uh, they become coded, and then you use them to go back down into the deep self in order to do a reading, in order to connect with others or to connect with archetypes or energy forces that you're bringing up in the reading. So yeah, I haven't quite thought of it that way before, but I think that is how it works, actually. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that excellent question. Well, speaking of dreams, you got me thinking about my dreams about snake when mm. I awakening the ancient power of snake. And I actually sat back and looked through some of my journals and some of the dreams I've had about snake. And I was secretly wishing to have another one. <laughs> but I think <laughs> that just having after read the book, but you know, these things just happen as they do. But I have had very symbolic dreams on snake and and it was nice to sort of look back now and explore deeper the message. I love the book. I'd love you to share a bit about the uh, mythology on snake because snake to me represents almost a bit of a global phenomena of transformation. Transformation, yeah. Yeah, and I think that is why so many people do have snakes in their dreams, especially during times of big change or transformation, you know, deaths and rebirths and just shifts, shifts of consciousness, huh? And yes, that's one of the main teachings of snake is about transformation. Should I tell you the dream that inspired the book? Yes. That kind of ties it together. This happened a number of years ago. It was actually right during the winter solstice. And I had some really bad back pains. I was in my bed in one of those moments kind of where I'm just like so frustrated. I said, what do I need to know? And lightning fast, as soon as I said that, or as soon as I thought that, and I was in a dreamlike state of consciousness. I wasn't dreaming per se, but I was in a very kind of altered dreamy state of consciousness. As soon as I asked, what do I need to know? I saw a snake and it was an immense snake. It was ancient, archetypal. A small part of me felt I should be fearful, but the thought that came to me is, how can I help you? And the snake tells me it has lost its tail. And then I actually do go into a dream. I'm kind of in a forest cabin from long ago. And there's an old woman sitting in front of a fire. And she has on her lap, she has a black snake that has been divided in two. And she's sewing together its tail onto its body. And I'm there too. And I'm kind of sitting behind her. And I'm sitting in the same way. And we're both sewing snake back together again. And then in that way of dreams, you know, I'm kind of shifting and I'm back in bed. And there's a snake inside of me. It's a small snake. It's silvery, gray, blue, really beautiful. It's kind of coiled at my spine. And I think of Kundalini that energy of awakening, that very strong in the Eastern traditions, and that comes to mind. And I say, oh, is that who you are to the snake? Are you Kundalini? And the snake says, I'm that, but many things beside. And it shares this vast panorama of its association with humans throughout the ages. So it's like a creator deity. It's an advisor to gods and goddesses and royalty. It's involved in healing. It's involved in guarding and protecting ancient wisdom. So there's this huge panorama. The dream was actually quite long. I won't go into all of it. But in the morning, I realized it was a big dream, huh? (laughs) a universal dream that was certainly meant a lot to me, but it also, I think, meant a lot about 
where we are as a planet, huh? And it did have to do with transformation. And one of the things that I wondered is, you know, why did the snake tell me it had lost its tail? Why was I sewing snake back together again? What was that vast panorama that we humans seem so disconnected from with snake? Because when you think of snake, most people wouldn't think of snake as a creator deity or as a, an advisor to gods and goddesses and royalty. So there was a separation there. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that maybe Snake was telling me it had lost its tail, its T-A-L-E, huh? the larger story of who it really is. And so that's what the book became. It became a book about Snake in all its forms, from you know, a literal snake, biological snake, to metaphorical, as a healer and a protector, and really as an animal that has gone from being worshipped and venerated to one that has been uh, shunned and despised and feared and hated. <laughs> and uh, the other thing that occurs to me, especially now as I talk to you about this, is the book was also, I, I felt the book was timely when I wrote it. But now I feel it's really timely because it's also about our cultural divide, huh? How divided we are, how separated we are, how this virus is showing us how much we've done to the earth and separated ourselves from the earth and from each other. And that transformation is really necessary if we are to survive as a species, really. And that's what snake, I think, brings as one of its biggest teachings is, is transformation. Snake is known as that which connects that which has been separated, huh? Yes. So it brings it together and reunites it. Yeah. Well, long answer, but yes, transformation for sure. That was really beautiful and reconnecting unity, Unity, you mm-hmm. just speak about that mm-hmm. as well, a symbol of unity. And quite often we do see the two snakes intertwined together. Yeah, we merging, do, we do. Merging of the opposites. Mm-hmm. And bringing together, merging, bringing together the opposites. And I think also lately I've been thinking about how it's also a celebration of the opposites, huh? Mm. Because there is that very sensual kind of entwining of the snakes I think that is also what the archetype of snake brings us, is a celebration of opposites and of diversity and of bringing these things together in a whole, in a sense of oneness. Snake is very powerful. There's no doubt about Mm. that. And people, whether they love snakes or hate snakes, it often is (laughs) an extreme either way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And either way is really powerful. And I realize now in your book how many people are actually out there helping, also helping to communicate the real message of snake. And your dream does bring together. It is about bringing the tail back. And Mm -hmm. can you tell a bit about the story of the tree of life and what snake represented in the ancient days and how we lost it, why we lost it? Because there's quite a misconception there, isn't there? There is, yeah. That's a big, big question. Let me just preface it by saying a kind of a more ancient view of snake was, as I alluded to before, kind of a creator deity. We see this in a lot of myths in many different cultures. Snake was a guardian, kind of this wrapped around the earth, the cosmic egg of the earth. Snake appears in Egypt as the wajit, you know, that little snake on the uraeus, which goes around the third eye and opens wisdom. And that was a sign of awakening, really. So anyway, snake creator, protector, a connector, an activator, brings together different realms, oversees transformation and awakening. And I think what you alluded to before is there are extremes with snakes. And I think there is a built-in paradox or duality about snake. And on the one hand, it is fearsome, but it's fearsome, I think, because it protects a treasure. 
and that treasure we may not be ready for. So on the one hand, it's protecting us from something we're maybe not ready for. But on the other hand, when we are ready, it's a guide and an initiator for awakening. Snakes are traditionally connected with or associated with trees. And so, you know, one of the most famous stories is the Garden of Eden story, where we have the cosmic tree or the sacred tree, huh? the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm. And in that story, God tells Adam and Eve in the garden, you could eat of any tree except for this tree. If you eat of this tree, you will die. So as protector of the tree, because it is a tree of secret knowledge, huh? of hidden knowledge, and the snake is protecting that. And he later tells Eve, you know, you won't die if you eat of this tree, but you're going to awaken. You'll be like God. That goes back to that idea of that snake is guarding the secret, powerful treasure. And maybe at that time, snake realizes Eve is ready for that. And so Adam and Eve don't die when they eat the apple, huh? They're just a snake set, but instead they're awakened. So that story, Joseph Campbell calls that kind of the pivotal story in snake mythology of how things really shifted. And that story was, when you view it in a historical context, kind of right at that point where we were shifting from a very goddess, earth-based view of the world to more of a sky god, a more hierarchical kind of militaristic view. That was when the Indo-European tribes kind of came in and they brought that idea for the mastery of nature and of man over woman and a man over animal. We see during those hundreds of years then, and still now really, a shifting of divine images from feminine to masculine, from union to separation, from our connection with animals and nature to a mastery over or a power over that. And we see that in the myths as well, which is really interesting, where snake was once this form of Shakti and very much connected with the goddess energy and Kundalini. And then we see those stories shifting again around this time where snake is now something to be killed. And the hero sky gods or the kings basically have to kill that because they're coming into power. And so it's a shift from the feminine to the masculine. Again, a turning point. And snake facilitates that transformation of extremes, huh? Mm. It really was a transformation of extremes. And we're kind of at the tail end of that right now, where the masculine, the patriarchal structure has become so strong and overblown, huh? And it's breaking down. And we see now more of the feminine coming back. And my short answer to what do we really want, I think it's not necessarily a return to the feminine, but a marriage of mm. the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine. We've experienced both extremes. And now Snake is kind of bringing them both together. And I think we're being asked to repair that division between male and female, goddess and god. And it's an interesting word, isn't it? To repair, to repair is to fix, but also it's to repair again, to mm. bring back together that which has been separated. Again, another teaching of Snake about bringing together that which has been separated into a larger whole. Incredibly powerful, the Snake medicine and the Snake wisdom. And the snake story, as you articulate mm. it, from the Garden of Eden. And it is about bringing back the unity and the transformation as a whole. It's hard to, I mean, right now I feel like the patriarchal is exaggerated so much. Just mm -hmm. literally mm -hmm. this moment with the lockdown and the virus and what's... It's very much about control and about mastery over. Take heart, because I think what happens traditionally is that 
you do get to a space where it's overblown and larger than life. Mm -hmm. And then that's kind of the tipping of the scales, huh? Where things shift. And I do think we do see that in some ways already, that shift is taking place. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how fast it'll be. I mean, (laughs) but we are at definitely a pivotal time of transformation right now. Yeah. And I mean, we need maybe perhaps it happens this way because we need to see it so that we can then create change. Yeah. And we need to see it. And I think we need to take responsibility. And something I don't talk a lot about in this book, but it's very much there is about shadow material Mm. and about all of that we kind of repress and suppress about ourselves and about culturally and as a country. There's things that we don't want to see. And I think all of that's coming up right now. And we're being asked to really confront our shadow in some powerful ways. Mm. Yeah. And we're being strongly asked to reunite as the snake offers. Yeah. We're asking to come together under these circumstances. Right. And also to transform ourselves, as you say, responsibility. We must take responsibility for our own part of creation, whether mm-hmm. it's pleasant or unpleasant. <laughs> we're always... Yeah. Part of it, and that's a big responsibility in a sense to see sometimes to act accordingly on that. It is, and yet it's necessary, I think it really mm-hmm. is. I don't think we can keep brushing things under the carpet. It's a time where we really do need to see it and take responsibility for it. And it's something that I've been working on for so long. Well, the last number of years, I've been really interested in shadow and working with my own shadow. What I've experienced is. By doing that, you get to a place of where you begin to lighten up and it actually becomes really interesting. And sometimes when somebody says something that angers me or frustrates me, I I get secretly excited too because I'm like, ooh, there's my shadow. What is it? I get to become a detective and find out what is that and what is that within me that holds me back or that brings a little bit of extra heaviness to my life that I don't need. So there can be a very creative part, I think, of working with shadow. And I think it's great that we're all doing this together because I think that makes it easier and it helps us, huh? Yes. It helps us lighten up. Yeah. yeah. We help each other. So with regards to shadow, what does snake represent? Often snake is revered for the shadow work appearing in ayahuasca visions plant medicines shamanic even their venom right that was amazing the venom the very thing that people fear most (laughs) because it can kill us is actually also healing it is again that duality of snake isn't it you know it's that which kills can also heal and i think that's why a snake is so connected to shadow because it is so large, or larger than life, in, as in my dream. It's so huge and it has such an extreme. Huh? Mm. And it really does, when we think of it in terms of transformation, it brings those extremes together. It holds shadow for us. It mm. holds fear. It holds misunderstanding. It holds things we don't want to look about. I think it holds power. I think it holds personal power. And I think many people are afraid of that. We're afraid of stepping into our power and shining our light. So that's another big thing that snake holds. And in terms of shamans and visions, snake is very much connected, I think, with who we are really basically down at a cellular level. And that particular chapter you're talking about, it was called the Snake Stargazer Scientist and Shaman. And it was all about how shamans, uh, it's kind of a long story, but the short is that many shamans note kind of an invisible being that's within everything, huh? within all living creatures. And they often see them as snakes. Scientists see a similar thing. It's called the DNA helix. Mm-hmm. And it looks like two little snakes, doesn't it? You know, And there's something about that DNA helix 
and the way that snakes entwine, that speaks to a core message or a blueprint within all living beings. And that's present. And another way, you know, that's what unites us all, isn't it? Mm. That very core energy of life and of the central blueprint of who we all are and why we're all here. Well, wow. So, yeah. I mean, if we look at it, everything comes from the darkness including the light. Sometimes I experience if I feel I'm aware of the shadow aspect of myself, it's almost like at some point this little crack of light just <laughs> appears mm -hmm. and then there's like, oh. <laughs> well, and that's what shadow is, isn't it? Shadow is the obstruction of light. It's not complete darkness. You can't have a shadow mm -hmm. in complete darkness. Yeah. So yeah, there's always that balance huh, of dark and light. And again, just to reiterate, snake is, you know, the integrator, that which joins realms or opposites. And so it kind of activates that awakening through a connection of dark and light, huh? And again, back to the union, unity of dark and light and unity mm. of everything, of unity of all yeah. life. Yeah, at a certain point, it becomes funny, doesn't it? Isn't it? Because you just see everything is so interconnected. And I don't know, I just kind of go into joy when I see that, when I feel that. It, it goes beyond words, huh? Do you know what I mean? It does, it is. And it's because it goes beyond self as well. There's no you and I or me and snake. It's just this one. And, yeah. And what's so, for me anyway, with the snake is so amazing is because on a physical level and a sensory level, it's so different. So the snake, the way the tongue comes out to taste the emotion, <laughs> it's like it doesn't, right. it tastes right. in the, the frequency of right. what's surrounding it. And the way the undulations, as you wrote about it too, it's just the way they move and don't have these sort of limbs like we do, which it's amazing. And their eyes always open. Mm -hmm. Always open. The real deep, little physical even grounding and connection to Mother Earth. Mm -hmm. So amazing, so close to the earth and yet also so close to the non-physical realms at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So literally from a physical perspective, from what my physical eyes can see, it is a big wow in the difference of the human self and senses. And yet yeah. when that whole physical aspect is out of the way. Right. And just to tie this back to how we began about animal communication, it does occur to me that one of the wonderful things about snake is that it can help us see life in such a different way. Because as you say, moving on the ground, you know, snake is intimately connected with the earth that way. Its whole body is, whereas just our feet are, <laughs> you know, we just have a little bit, right? And snakes also, I'm thinking about the variety of species. There's over 3,500 species. There's water snakes. There's snakes that burrow. There's snakes that climb trees. There's snakes that basically fly, quote unquote. You know, they kind of leap from trees and they glide through the air. So they have so many as a group, a snake as a group or snake as an archetype has so many experiences of how to be on the earth. And that kind of makes sense. Like I said, as an archetype or as a teacher has this vast access to many different ways of experiencing the earth. Huh? So we can learn a lot from that, just like we can learn from any animal, learning how they perceive the earth and move on the earth. And each species has their own unique teaching and their own unique story to tell. Yeah, very powerful, very incredibly powerful. Was it a risk to put a book out about? It's not a risk, but, you know, like, a, do you think, I, I think people are opening up now, aren't they, though? I think they are. I'll, I'll tell you, though, I did have to fight for this 
book to be published. Mm -hmm. I have a really wonderful publisher, but they were very iffy about it. And I kind of <laughs> pull out the big guns, like we're in a state of transformation. We need this. It's timely. A snake is so important. And I felt myself become an advocate for snake because right. snake is so maligned, you know, in our society, I think overall. But as you say, the last chapter is about so many people who are helping to educate humans, other humans about snakes and helping us to see snakes in different ways. So there is that too, and there is change. I feel for many of us, especially in the modern Western culture, to learn about how snake was once revered and the many reasons why they established that position in cultures of ancient wisdom where a lot of us are coming back to that in the world of nature and we are coming back to that as well. Yeah, and you know, it just brings to mind that image of the Ouroboros, which is the snake grasping its tail, and it's kind of this circular image. And you're right, when you say we're coming back to that, I think you're right. I think we're coming back to this sense of animals as teachers, as guides and wisdom keepers of so much that we humans have forgotten. And so, yeah, it was a little bit of a wake up for me to realize, oh, snakes were once these creator deities. And I mean, it was a shock. I didn't know that when I first started this project. So yeah, it's like a return, huh? To all the old wisdom that we've kind of forgotten. And I mean, in many ways, not just this book, but in many ways, I think that's what we're moving towards is a remembering, huh? <laughs> Again, like repair, remembering is we're bringing, remembering, we're bringing our members back, we're bringing ourselves back together, huh? I'm really happy that your publisher agreed to, <laughs> to <laughs> fought, Me too. <laughs> you, fought, you fought for snake, really. You fought, you fought for the snake message and for what you received in your dream. Surely there's a lot of substance and power in that. And so I'm really glad that book came out. And to everybody, because I must admit I have always in my own somehow, some way loved snake and not really <laughs> known mm. why. Although now when, since I moved a little more bush, I actually live with snakes. You know, we have them, many of them on our property. And for me, when I see a snake, I feel the privilege that it's allowed me to see it, that we do share the land. They keep to themselves. And that's the other thing I kind of find is, yes, okay, and they are there. We do have some venomous snakes here. But the way I see it is if we keep to ourselves, so do they. They just want to be, they're not interested really <laughs> in bothering us. No, they're not interested in attacking humans. No, that's not their, <laughs> their, their agenda. But at the same time, you know, we need to respect snakes, certainly, as well as other animals. And as you say, give them space. There's plenty of space and plenty of room. That's how I see it for us all to share the land. And there's also plenty of food, I know, around for them. I did see a huge python once. And I was like, oh, and I knew that it had seen me. I knew that I was there watching, but it seemed to not be bothered by me being there. And then I realized that's because it was focusing on its meal, which was a big lizard, mm. not far. Mm -hmm. And there was a part of me that naturally just wanted to jump up and say, for the lizard to get away, <laughs> you know, you're about to <laughs> And this other part of me just went, this is nature. Let it be. Yeah. You know, step out of my own judgments, opinions, or rescues and savings. This is nature. This snake is doing what snake is meant to be doing. And mm -hmm. So I got to watch something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great little story. Yeah, for sure. And it's difficult. I appreciate that how it can be difficult to do that. But sometimes what is most powerful in healing is to step back and realize I'm an observer here mm -hmm. and I'm privileged to watch it.
I must say, though, it reminds me of another story. It's not always easy. It doesn't always run so smoothly for these predator mm. preys. Um, one time, this was not on our property, but in a beautiful waterfall nearby, we noticed my husband and I were sitting at the water and we noticed a bit of sort of action activity. And I went over to have a look and a snake was there with a small frog hmm. in its mouth. And I'm looking, I'm going, oh, wow, <laughs> wow. Like I could just see the frog's eyes at the end of the snake's mouth. Now, I understand better after reading your book, it's not like grab and a kill and a swallow. It looked like it was still working quite hard toward bringing the frog into bring it, in. to bring it in. Uh-huh. And that was the sort of activity we had noticed. There was a lot of energy and work involved. And it did look like a smaller snake, so younger, perhaps new to the world, not so new, big enough to be noticeable. Um, and then I'm watching, and then next thing, a kookaburra zooms down and takes the frog out of the snake's mouth. <laughs> no way, that is just not fair. <laughs> the snake is learning how to feed, how to feed itself and it's just so hard and then kaboom, it's all gone and then I watched the snake go off with no food and I was sort of sad for the snake. My husband was sad for the frog. And <laughs> it's all it's all relative to your perspective right for sure but the snake is hungry didn't get its food yeah but the frog just got eaten i go yeah but the kookaburra that's the naughty kookaburra (laughs) (laughs) passing on all our sort of human opinions and judgments on nature it was quite interesting to watch that whole episode it's funny yeah and the snake learned a lesson too i'm sure swallow quickly The kookaburras are watching and, oh, (laughs) what a cheek. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating and beautiful creatures. And I guess in itself, perhaps when humans learn to live in harmony with not only snake, but I know you also, as you were saying before, that perhaps the species that represent our shadow selves, Mm -hmm. when we learn to live more in harmony with our own shadows, maybe we also learn to live in more harmony with those sort of reflections. I think that's true. I think they become less shadow. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason that many animals become quote unquote shadow animals is because of our own fear and our own projections. A lot about snakes, I think, is often cleared up in people when they get to understand them a little bit more and when they learn about them a little bit more and they realize, oh, that was just kind of a projection I had about snakes. So a little knowledge goes a long way and knowledge just about snakes, but as you say, yes, also about ourselves and about our own shadow material and things we don't want to see. Yeah. It is, Mm. isn't it? We can become free from all that when we see it, Mm -hmm. what it is, Mm -hmm. or when we shine some light onto it. Just on closing, Dawn, because you did, there's other work you've done, shape-shifting with our animal companion from the shaman wisdom about Mm shape-shifting. Interesting. Can you explain a bit about that, what it actually means to shape-shift with an animal? Sure. Yeah, so I wrote a book, Shape-Shifting with Our Animal Companions, and I really wanted to call that book Shifting our shapes of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Because to me, that's really what shape shifting is about. There is that whole notion of shape shifting where you actually change your shape, and that, and that has a whole tradition onto itself. But the way I was working with shape shifting is more about shifting the way we see the world and shifting our perspectives on the world. And sometimes, as we talked about before, like, for example, learning from snake as it crawls or as it climbs trees, is I think it's possible to commune with an animal in such a way that we actually understand the world from their perspective. 
And the first time I experienced this, I was out in the mountains with my husband and daughter, and I was just, again, in a very kind of very meditative, zen state, just looking and enjoying myself walking, and I saw an eagle overhead, and I had this little thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to see the world like an eagle? And just like that, I was there. I was in the eagle's consciousness, seeing the world from this totally different perspective. And it wasn't just as if like, oh, I'm seeing it from an airplane or I'm looking down at life. It was actually qualitatively different from the way I've ever seen the world before. There was a clarity to the vision. And I knew for that moment that I was in the eagle's eyes sharing consciousness with this animal and seeing the world from this totally different perspective. So that's a lot of what I explored in that book and kind of playing with that notion of perceiving the world in different ways, either through animals or through our own worldviews. You know, we all have our own perspectives and we all have our blinders on in certain things. And again, working with shadow material is about opening up those blinders or removing them to some degree so that we can see in larger, more expansive ways, less narrow-minded ways, huh? Absolutely. Just brings it all together and how animals and nature are really our teachers, our reflection. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I think everything is, isn't it? Everything is. Everything mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other. So, yeah. When we open to that, everything becomes a teaching and a communication. And, life. <laughs> and that's life. And what a beautiful way to live life. Thank you so much. Thank you so yes. much for sharing for this deep communion that you share with the natural world and with the animals. And also what I enjoyed in the snake book was there was that sense of you and the intuitive knowings as well as the research and Mm -hmm. stories, Mm -hmm. the mythology. It was a beautiful balance. Oh, thank you. And it was a while ago I read The Shapeshifting with Animal Friend. I just remember I couldn't put it down. I just couldn't mm. put it down. It is that expanded perception. And we, we touched on that earlier on. That's what transformation is all about. Yeah. Dawn, can you tell me, please, what does Lionheart mean to you? Yes. I've been thinking about this. You know, in my animal wisdom tarot, I use the lion to represent the major arcana card number eight, which is traditionally called the strength card. And I remember sitting with lion, with the lioness teacher, and a kind of opening for what that card wanted to be called, because I knew I wanted lion to represent strength. There was just something about lion that spoke to me about that. And the words I got were ruler of the open heart. And that really symbolized for me lion. Lion is a symbol of courage, truth, and dignity, and really as a guide or a motivator to help us act from the heart. I was also thinking about in ancient cultures, lion was often associated with the sun, huh? with royalty and healing and illumination and kind of that authentic self. But so also in ancient time was lion associated with the goddess. And I think there is this really beautiful melding of feline and feminine energies in lion. And that's what I wanted that card to be. And again, that also resonates to me as ruler of the open heart. And kind of as a reminder that true strength is not violent or controlling, but it's rather about acceptance, huh? And presence, deep presence, kind of as a path to self-actualization. So I think for me, in terms of animal teaching, line is very much about advising us to appraise ourselves, honestly, you know, to acknowledge our weaknesses, but also to really step into our power and to rule ourself, our speech, our behavior, everything that we do without force or manipulation to be really patient and compassionate and respectful of others, but at the same time, to claim our own authority. 
So it's really to find the balance of the open heart. So for me, that's lion heart. Mm. Lion heart, the open heart and strength. Mm. Yeah. And the truth of self, being true to yourself. Yeah. Your true self. There's a lot of authenticity and power in the statement, your true self, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah, there's a resonance, isn't there? And to me, it feels very lion-like. It feels very self-assured without being overly grand, but being very centered in who you are and knowing who you are, huh? There's a lot of wisdom in that, just knowing who you are and resonating that for others to be with. I'm getting those shivers again, Dawn. Yeah, that's... <laughs> and, and often the lion is referred to as the king, and yet feline is so feminine. So mm-hmm. Truly, mm-hmm. that truly is the embodiment of both. Mm-hmm. I think so too. I think there actually is a balance there, a really nice balance of male and female in line as an archetype or as a teacher. Thank you for spending your precious time listening to this podcast. I really do hope that you enjoyed. You can find some helpful links related to the topics we have discussed, download some freebies and join our Lionheart community by visiting our website, lionheartworkshops.com. To view this specific podcast blog, click on podcast at the main menu. Please also share this with friends, hit subscribe and leave us a review so that these ideas can continue to spread. Those pretty little stars help others to find us. The Lionheart Podcast and Lionheart Online Workshops is an online platform and community designed to enhance your health, natural and spiritual well-being. Until next time, please think about how you will embody your Lionheart and reach your highest potential as the amazing human being that you are.